Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast where we interview MedTech leaders about the critical data-driven decisions they make during their product development projects. I'm your host, Andy Rogers. Today we have Melanie Springer. And so today we're going to be talking even more about diagnostic tests, specifically why it's important to prioritize the assay, working with assay teams, the scientists that are making these diagnostic tests. Talk a little bit more about prioritizing the assay when you're developing these very complex systems. Sample in, result out, high throughput central lab, point of care, decentralized locations, and kind of everything in between. At the end of the day, it, it really is the assay. Before we get into it too far, I am thankful today, this Thanksgiving week, that Melanie's on the on the show. Melanie, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your background here at KeyTech? Sure. As you already introduced me, my name is Melanie Springer, and I'm a mechanical engineer here at KeyTech. I started in 2013 and have been here ever since. Recently became a partner at the company, um, and I've done a lot of work in IVD and with fluidics in general. I would kind of consider microfluidics and cartridge designs one of my specialties. Thanks, Melanie. So let's talk a little bit more about the assay. Why is it important to prioritize that, you know, when you start looking at the diagnostic test from a cartridge and instrument perspective? Well, ultimately, as you've kind of alluded to, you know, the assay is really what's getting the work done in the product. Ultimately, you know, if your assay isn't going to work, you're not going to get the, the result that you need or, or worse, you're going to get an incorrect result. So it's really important to abide by whatever rules, you know, whatever chemistry rules exist in order to make that assay function. Obviously, you know, we're, we're designing like holistic products here. So, you know, there is going to be a cartridge. There may be an instrument. But ultimately, any decisions we're making related to the cartridge or the instrument are going to be driven by us needing to develop a product that correctly go goes through the assay. So certainly everyone can, can believe that you want to prioritize this, this, this assay, right? But when you get down into it, um, you know, putting it on plastic, looking at it in an automated fashion, you could argue that by prioritizing the assay, you do save time and, and ultimately money. Why, why is that? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, a lot of times in development, we're concerned with time to market and, you know, decreasing development time. And, and basically, you know, thinking about the assay first is, is a mindset that helps to expedite that process by eliminating unnecessary challenges. You know, we've worked with clients before that, you know, maybe had gotten a few steps down a development process and, had made some assay changes. And it's, it's really important to remember that the assay is what's driving here, or else you might end up in a situation where you're honoring some legacy architecture for your cartridge or for your instrument or both that really isn't best suited anymore to, to the new or the current assay. So it, it's basically just a means of keeping you focused. As you were talking, I think it, it brought up a, a a good slight segue, a little, a little bit off script here, but I'm going to go ahead off the script early anyway. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's prioritizing the assay as we've talked about, but for an assay or for a platform rather to, to have value, it's not being the ability to run one assay. It's the ability to run a whole menu of assays, some of which aren't even determined, mm -hmm. you know, when you're developing the system. So how, how do you think about you know, developing a platform so that you can kind of adjust for fu basically future proofing, either, you know, cu customer decisions or 
assay roadmap? Because I feel like this is a really important consideration when we're developing these systems is develop it so that yes, it's specific enough to run exactly what they're looking for, but also generic, if you will, as a platform to be able to run future assays. How do you, how do you keep that in mind? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And platform flexibility is something that comes up all the time. Yeah. So I guess to a certain extent, you do have to have a sense, you know, of what the range of assays that you're going to try to achieve with this instrument is. And you have to have some sense of, you know, what is likely to change from one assay to the next for this platform, you know, within that that menu of different assays that might end up on this instrument. It's, it's really important to align on, um, you know, what's expected to change and what's not expected to change early in the project. And uh, as much as it's possible to fold that into requirements so that you can make sure that you're able to accommodate differences as assays change from, you know, menu item to menu item in terms of uh, what different diagnostic tests you might be m might be looking to, to achieve. I guess some examples of that are perhaps it's that, you know, that some of these assays might require a larger number of lyophilized reagents or a larger volume of liquid reagents. And that's something that you need to make sure that you are not, you know, designing a cartridge that is just barely big enough to get by on the current assay. Or, you know, maybe it's that temperature temperatures might need to be, you know, slightly higher or slightly lower for different versions of these assays and um, kind of understanding and, and planning for and in your instrument design, making accommodations to allow you to hit those targets that you might not know right now, but ultimately you may need to accommodate in the future. I guess another corollary question to, to that original one about a platform or, or, or developing it for a future, you know, roadmap. How do, how do you design for different sample types? Let's say one is a, you know, a nasal swab into a, you know, a, a dilution buffer, right? <clears throat> but you also need to design something for blood in the future. Like, have you done that? And, and how do you sort of handle two different uh, sample input types, designing it as a platform? Yeah, and, and I think that um, there's definitely parts of that that we've done here and parts of it that are more owned typically by our clients. Uh, I guess like if we're talking about swabs, you know, they're going to need to figure out, you know, the chemistry um, that's needed to elute off of that. But, you know, we also know that the there's likely to be, you know, need for some sort of agitation and, and stirring. Um, so that's, you know, the part of it that we would be more involved with, like less on the chemistry side, more on the, you know, mechanical implementation. But I guess in a lot of those cases, you can, you know, reuse parts of the instrument that can be utilized in either of those cases. For instance, with blood um, sample prep, a lot of times we, we might do mechanical lysis. And that is something that, you know, that requires a motor. And maybe that's the same motor that you can use for, you know, a stirring function that might be necessary for um, alluding off of a swab. I, I think that the important part in development is just to make sure that you are planning for for any of those different inputs. So you, you should hopefully at least be able to define, you know, what your intended sample types are from the start. And, you know, of course, like things always change, but we're, we're just talking about and trying to do as much upfront to minimize the schedule hit if those decisions do get made down the road. Where is the uh, core value in these assays for diagnostic companies. You know, I feel like there's, you know, magnetic beads, there's lyophilized reagents, there's pipetting and a lot of these, a lot of these systems. And there's, of course, there's the measurement. In your experience, what have you seen uh, is, is the most valuable, you know, for, for clients? And where do you then focus most of your time developing 
the, the system that will automate these assays? Is it on the reagent handling? Is it on the, the detection measurement side or is it a little bit of both? Yeah. See, I guess you're, you're asking where the magic is, basically. Um, That's a yeah. good way to put it, yes. <laughs> a lot of times, you know, it can be, you know, in the assay itself, like we're saying that that's like where you want to put your priori priority. A lot of clients that we have, you know, come to us with like a really specialized way of being able to get some results. So some of the special sauce ends up, uh, you know, just in the assay itself. But, you know, other times, you know, it's uh, we, we do do more novel things on the, the cartridge and inter instrument side in order to, you know, make drive things smaller or faster or more accurately. So it's definitely a little bit of everything. And it, is, it definitely is a different on a project by project basis. But I guess I would I would just want to make the point that even if, you know, no IP is coming out of, you know, your instrument or your cartridge in that design, that doesn't make it any, you know, less valuable or marketable of a product. And there are plenty of assays, you know, that, you know, are, are doing something novel and, and can make like a big difference in the world. And it's just a matter of doing the diligent, detail-oriented work of, you know, doing a good cartridge and instrument design that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do something strictly novel and, and, and in order to, you know, turn that into a, a full-fledged product. Gotcha. Yeah, you've mentioned a few times cartridge, as I have. So let's focus on that a little bit. It's uh, assay is king, cartridge is queen. I guess we're making t-shirts. Um, <laughs> all right. All right. So, so you know, you've, you've developed a few cartridges over the years or worked on them. So when you, when you see the assay, and you sit down, okay, it's going to be automated on a cartridge, it's going to be going into an instrument. You know, what are your, your top considerations when you sit down to effectively architect a cartridge, assuming it's a cartridge going into an instrument? Um, tell me a little bit about some of your considerations there. Yeah, I think the, the first and most obvious one is just reviewing the assay and trying to figure out what aspects of uh, that assay does the cartridge need to be able to support? So, for instance, you know, aliquoting out specific amounts of fluid, doing fluid mixing, heating, magnets, uh, ultrasound, optical. Uh, there's there's all these different, you know, ways of interacting your fluid and your chemistry. So first, I think uh, coming up with kind of like a holistic list of of all of those different, you know, aspects of your assay. I think that in addition to that, I, I tend to put a larger emphasis on thinking about the volumetric accuracy requirements of the assay because the, there's definitely, depending on how tight your tolerances need to be there in terms of your fluid volumes, it's it, it could really drive you in a specific architectural direction. So, you know, if, if you're trying to pipette or, you know, move fluid at plus or minus half a percent, that's going to put you in a region where you're talking about you know, pipetting or using a syringe driver. Whereas if you're, you know, closer to the 10 to 20%, you might be able to, you know, meter out into a chamber on your cartridge and use optical sensing. So that's definitely one that I think uh, uh, is is pretty impactful in terms of how it drives cartridge design and, and generally the system architecture. Another one, I think, is uh, reagent storage. There's oftentimes, you know, assays that will need a lyophilized reagent for something because that's uh, how you make that reagent stable, but a fluidic uh, or a, 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 re a, flu a reagent that's a fluid um, for something else for a different reason, chemistry-wise, based on stability. So it, it gets challenging when you have both of those together because, um, you know, you have to keep your lyos dry for the 
whole shelf life of that cartridge. And it's it, it can be challenging when you're, you're storing it potentially together with liquid reagents. So that that's also another one that's very critical to think about early because um, we've definitely learned that lesson and, and experienced uh, lyophilized bead decay in, in cases where that's not, you know, respected. So those are all great considerations for sure, focused on the assay. And uh, we're about halfway through the podcast. So <laughs> at, at about the halfway point, this is when we start talking about the user. Now, I know it's about the assay, but let, let's <laughs> talk about the user while we're halfway through here. You know, when, when, you're, when you're looking at automating the assay on the cartridge, talk to me about how you think about the user, though. Mm-hmm. So I think user workflow is a, a big part of cartridge design and architecture definition. I guess the installation of cartridges is a user action and, and is something, you know, that a user is going to have to do regularly when interacting with the device. So making sure that that's intuitive and usable, you know, is, is really important. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of different ways that that can drive the architecture and it's pretty dependent on an assay by assay and product by product, you know, situation. I think my favorite ki- uh, case study here at KeyTech, I'm sure you can agree in, in terms of uh, simplicity and, and easy to use is um, the UltraCrit. You know, that, that cartridge is very simple. I mean, it's, it's a clear wave platform. You prick your finger, you wick blood, right? And you're loading the sample directly into the cartridge that actually is going to be used to get your measurement. So, I mean, that's like the holy grail is sample into the cartridge direct from the patient that goes direct into the, into the instrument. So one other comment you made, I think you made about a planarity. And I, I think that's more broadly uh, defined, I guess, is, as I see it, like design for test, design for visibility, having the ability to actually watch your assay run. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do you think about design for test, you know, when you're looking at cartridges or in their early stages of development? Another, I guess, uh, to start off on a kind of a related tangent, um, manufacturing is a huge part of this uh, entire exercise where cartridge design is something that car- cartridge manufacturing is something that you get have to get perfect because you're making, you know, hundreds, if not thousands or maybe even millions of these disposables in order to support your product. So ultimately, you need with a really good manufacturing plan and talk to your manufacturing partner very early, you know, to make sure that you're setting yourself up for success. But even oftentimes we end up, you know, with a short term and a long term manufacturing plan to the point that you just made and being able to have high visibility into your assay during development. So a lot of times, uh, I, I guess there's there's no substitute for your eyes. <laughs> um, if you have a cartridge and it's in, uh, in a, embedded deep into your instrument in a place that you can't see it and you have an intermittent problem, you likely aren't going to be able, it, it, it's going to be very difficult for you to debug what's going on without having, you know, eyes on the system. So that can impact cartridge design in in your short-term development phase uh, to make sure that you're preferably using something clear. And then also oftentimes we end up designing fixtures that are um, much more open than the final design in order to support, you know, development work as, you know, fine tuning different like open loop commands or, or whatever as part of the, part of the assay. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, having it be two-dimensional and see, see with your eyes is one way to do it. I guess, talk to me a little bit more about, not to me, to our viewers, I suppose, <laughs> uh, about, about some of the ways that we actually do or could do sort of in-process assay checks, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. optics, you know, pressure sensing. How are you doing it on projects these days? Yeah, I think optics and, and pressure sensing are definitely like the 
most valuable. We've used lots of IR sensors, both reflective and through, um, in order to detect fluid presence. So we have a lot of experience in that. And it's, it's definitely a super valuable way of confirming that uh, things are going as designed as intended. And, th and then pressure is also a very valuable one as well. And so you can, you can see whether you're getting cartridge leaks or, you know, uh, if uh, uh, filters are wetting out, things like that. So I think those are probably the best two if you're not going to be able to look at the whole, whole cartridge visually. So that's a good segue actually into serving our customers, right? Our customers are the assay scientists and we are we are providing them these, these test beds effectively. Sometimes it's a piecemeal portion of a, of a cartridge. Other times it's the fully integrated cartridge, but either way, we're providing them this data throughout the assay to help them develop, you know, develop and de-risk their assay. So can you, can you describe how, how Keytech optimally works with assay teams so that the assay stays king and the program is preserved as best as possible. In an ideal world, we get direct FaceTime with the assay team regularly. And, and, and what regularly means might be different on a different project, but it's really important for you know the engineering team to understand the challenges that the assay team has and vice versa and so that we understand you know where where does the risk lie and that that both helps us to you know solve and focus on the correct technical challenges but also kind of helps to steer project direction i guess one thing one reason that we often do fixture work in order to support the assay team usually these fixtures are being used by the assay team themselves in order to uh, facilitate, you know, faster testing or just more representative testing of what the product will ultimately do. But one re reason that we often do that is to support uh, guard banding testing so that the chemistry team can help and hone in on, you know, the tolerances that are required on on different aspects of the assay. So for instance, you know, maybe you have a requirement for your temperature uh, of your fluid to get to 95, but you might not know if that's okay, if it's 94 or if it's 94 and a half or 94 and three quarters. Basically, you know, we, we designed fixtures to kind of allow the chemistry team to play with different variables, whether it's temperature, whether it's volume, and kind of see what what does and does not break the assay. That's one reason, I guess, that we do fixturing. Got it. So so describe a little bit more what you think the the optimal sort of handoff points throughout a development program are. Yeah, it definitely depends program to program. I think that there are, there are times, you know, when based off of engineering challenges that may be driven by, you know, marketing rather than assay, there, there, there are times that engineering can ha provide feedback for to the assay and they can kind of go a different direction. Um, that doesn't always work, but there, the, like I have had experiences, you know, where, where that's the case where, you know, we could use a different type of chemistry to account for the fact that this instrument's going to be super expensive because the tolerances on the, you know, the heater, like I was just as an example to reiterate, if those tolerances are really, really high, maybe it means that uh, we need more expensive electronics or, you know, just a more complicated, larger instrument. So then we kind of have to push back on assay. Uh, and say like, hey, how, how is a different way that we can do this? What, what parameters can we adjust to still be able to get the correct uh, results, but, uh, you know, also meet these other requirements. So, um, gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like it's, it's very much a dialogue and that's probably the key, key word here, you know, when, you, when you're looking at automating assays and, and putting, prioritizing the assays, yes, they, 
the assay team ultimately is, is making some of the key, will the measurement work or not, but there are other sort of strategic go-to-market, if you will, strategies or packaging, as you say, that, that will push back. Um, so we're pushing back on, 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 on cartridge cost, right? Cause that's the razor blade pushing back on, on instrument cost and, and what are the different ways to, you know, heat, cool, push fluids, you know, all the, all those sorts of key subsystems to drive, drive, drive the, uh, drive the assay on the cartridge. Uh, so it's very much a dialogue. I totally agree. We show a process diagram, right? That shows, you know, de-risk, identify the, the variables of interest by conducting a sensitivity analysis, a Bible, if you will, of all the steps of the assay. And then you develop the test fixtures to study those variables of interest. And then you learn and then you architect the system. But in, in the show prep, you mentioned that uh, it's kind of funny to, to try and conduct a sensitivity analysis initially. Uh, and you mentioned there were, there were some challenges with that. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's it's difficult because like in an ideal world, we would be able to come up with a really robust requirements set driven by assay that was defined, you know, even before we're really, you know, starting to dive deep in, in architecture development or just design in general. But functionally, there's a lot of times when the uh, when the design of the cartridge can and the instrument can kind of fold back and uh, shift those requirements or cause us to to take a second look at the way that they were, you know, early guard banding studies might have been run. And sometimes those just need to be repeated in a more realistic sense. So I guess for for an example, um, to give it some, some context, you uh, might have a portion of the assay that's been typically run on a off-the-shelf PCR uh, thermocycler in a 96-volt plate or something like that. And in your actual cartridge, maybe your your volumes are different. And, and for, sur for sure, your aspect ratio is almost certainly going to be different. So uh, maybe as opposed to that fluid being in a well, maybe it's in a channel or, you know, a thin chamber or something like that. And the thermal uniformity, for instance, might be different in either of those scenarios. Uh, and it'll call into question, you know, the original uh, temperature requirements that were set based off of this early benchtop testing might not be applicable in this new situation. So requirements are, are always tricky. You know, we're always, um, you know, questioning what what's important, what's not important. But it, it is definitely something that needs to be revisited throughout the course of the project and is a key part of why, you know, a communication between the assay team and uh, the design team is so important. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great example. I hadn't even thought about that uh, with, with the temperature uniformity changing. Uh, I, I imagine the similar sort of arguments apply for the other variables of interest, right? Like volume control, of course, temperature control, rehydration of lyophilized reagents, yeah. mag beads, mag beads too. Mm -hmm. and other sort of lysing methods, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I could probably go, go down a spiel on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll spare. Go for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the bait, I guess. Well, great. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's great you've outlined some of the key challenges and, and you know, with automating an assay on, on, a, on a system and, and why it's important to have that continued dialogue, you know, between a development team and your assay team working together at various key touch points early on, getting those test beds out to really understand what the variables of interest are after your sort of cursor evaluation on, on basically on a, on a spreadsheet or as you, as you mentioned, 
a simple, you know, 96 well-played sort of platform. So, uh, so with that, Melanie, I guess, do you have any other, any other high level learnings from, from being in the trenches these last couple of years? I'm not sure. I guess, I guess uh, patience and due diligence. I feel like that's really all the product development's about as a whole. So yep. Stick with it, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, we'll definitely be doing that. We'll definitely be sticking with it. So, uh, Hey, thanks for your insights, Melanie. Appreciate it. And, uh, thanks everybody. Don't forget to, uh, smash the like button there on YouTube and, uh, listen to more, more podcasts here in the future. We've got a big, big plan for, for 2022, lots of new, uh, you know, guests and, uh, and topics to cover. So, so stay tuned, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, www.keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.